Amen. Good morning. You know, uh, I must forget my password code. We'd been in trouble. I had to call Pastor Jonathan up here. <laughs> I'm intentionally going through the book of Hebrews at a slower pace because really all the word of God. My aim is when I teach after I taught something and you're doing your daily Bible reading and you come to something I've taught, you will remember the small nuances, the small details that I give you, and it will enhance your reading. But right now I'm going to read from Psalms 13. I said I would do this every time I teach uh, on Sunday anyway, to remember all the conflicts that's going on in Israel. But Psalm 13 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take your counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes. Lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved, but I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God is known to do that. He shows a multitude of mercies to us. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. We left off. In verse 9, so I will start there. The writer says, there remains, therefore, a rest. And if you can remember last week, I said, that's a Sabbath rest the Lord is speaking of. The first and only time it's used in the New Testament. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. And only believers can enjoy this rest. Because they have approached God the only way that is possible through his son, Jesus Christ. You know, especially around Christmas time, it's easy to reflect the kind of rest the believer in Christ should be enjoying. And that rest is for right now. You don't have to wait until you fall asleep, as the New Testament says in death and in the resurrection, you all of a sudden, you get that rest. No. God provides a rest for us. He has a present peace and a present joy to replace the labor and heavy burdens of life. And I need that, and I know you need it too. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And then he says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We can have God's rest. Hebrews 4 4 has said, For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested. On the seventh day from all his works. God's own rest becomes the experience of the believer. God rest involves the completion of his work. And it, it's not just mere cessation. It's not just a discontinuance of activity. 
Understand God knows everything about us. He knows I live in the 346 zip code of Lawrenceville. He knows the pressure in our lives, the pressure the world wants to conform us to. We need to be confident, though, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God does not want his children, none of us, to be stressed out in this world, to be anxiety-ridden in this world. He doesn't want our lives to be a drudgery. It should be. It's good for people to have a drudgery-ridden life when they don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That helps us look to someone who can take all of the drudgery from us. But now that we are believers, it shouldn't be like that. We shouldn't have uh, anxiety-ridden life. We are complete in Jesus Christ, and we can live in the light of a fulfilled relationship with Jesus as our exalted head. The work from which we have rested from all these activities that I've been looking at in Hebrews of trying to please God, works-based righteousness, working, climbing the ladder to please God, that should all go away when you've been born again. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The Jews back then was still doing the ceremonial activities trying to please God. But once again, it always looked forward to the fulfillment in Christ. When Christ came as a babe in Bethlehem, and then when he died on the cross for our sins and was resurrected, when we come to know him, it should be a heavy weight that's lifted from us. We don't have to strive anymore. We don't have to work anymore because all of that was finished by Jesus. And now that we're born again, we're in Christ. All of that was completed when he died on the cross and was resurrected. I want to know, have you entered that rest this morning? How do, you, how do we do that? Well, in Hebrews 4.3, it says, for we who have believed, we do enter that rest. Really what God is saying is mankind's chief should be his chief anxiety problem. His stress problem should be where am I going when I leave this world? And if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, that should be the stress eliminator. Nothing in this world after we've given our lives to Jesus Christ should add stress and stress upon us. Now, I know it can happen, but quickly, when that starts happening, we should remember that we've given our lives to Christ and he's got the best plan for us and we can rest in his loving kindness. Continue that rest daily. Do you believe that? That's the question. It's there. The scripture says it. We believe the scriptures, don't we? My question is, do we believe that? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13 says this, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. I can't help but believing the shame in all of this is when you stand in front of Jesus and he says, depart from me, I never knew you because you haven't been born again. He goes on to say, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God is not a man that he should lie. Have you did that? Is there a time in your life you repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to come into your life and be the Lord of your life sincerely and you meant that? not with your head, but with your heart, then you can take it to the bank that he he did his part. As I was thinking about this, God is so good, he gives us a litmus test. And that's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through 10. He says this, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, John says, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that can only be through being born again through Jesus Christ, and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, he excludes himself from this. He says that this is a test. We have fellowship with one another. Now, that's, that's, that's the test. The test I'm, uh, I'm walking with, with the Lord is how I am walking with you. The test is not with the Lord, he says. Put me out of the equation. I did my part. Now, the test that you know me is how I treat my brothers and sisters in Christ, Victor. And I'm showing Christ to my neighbor, He continues, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, homo legeo, say the same thing that he said. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Hebrews 4.3 is correct. For we who have believed, we do enter that rest. Verse 10 says, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. We share as believers this rest. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of. What he did, Jesus did, we do. We are identified with him. We enter into his experiences. And then the writer encourages us to seek God's rest by the penetrating power of the word of God. I don't know about you. When I get stressed out, I might not run to his word right away. But if the stress continues to stay on me, I go to my hiding place. And my hiding place is the word of God. Remember the promised land he's speaking of here is not heaven. 
It's the victorious Christian life that every believer can have here on earth. Because in the promised land, there was giants, there were battles. There's not going to be any of those things in heaven. So it can't be heaven. We're going to rest in heaven finally. So it represents the promises of God to the believer. And it's interesting that the law couldn't take God's people into those promises because God's people couldn't keep the law. Moses couldn't do it. So the person that takes them into the promised land was Joshua. First book in the Bible that a name is used, Joshua, Yahshua, is the one who takes us into the promised land. And there's a beautiful picture here. But harking back to the historical reality of what the children of Israel experienced is because rest, you know, is not found in vacations. And I love to take vacation. That's my wife. Or in location. And once again, I'm all about vacations. But sometimes, have you been on a vacation when you get back, you're more tired when you get back than when you left? But the kind of rest that the Bible is holding out to us this morning does not have anything to do with a vacation or location. If I could only get to a solitary mountain by myself, all my problems would go away. Or if I could finally get to the white, pristine beaches and the clear blue waters of Bimini, oh, all my problems would go away. But it's not like that. Have you ever had that uh, vacation from hell? Lydia and I, we, and my entire family, we kid ourselves. We call ourselves the Griswells. <laughs> you ever seen those movies? Because it seems like every time we go on vacation, what can go wrong usually does go wrong. So usually when we get back, that's when the vacation starts. So it's not where you go on vacation, and it's not the location. And for the children of God, it wasn't in one day a week because they didn't have rest. And the author here is encouraging us who have not come to know Messiah, Jesus, not to turn back to those ordinances, those earthly institutions that reflect a greater truth, but provided nothing, nothing in and of themselves. Jesus has placed us in his family by the work of the Holy Spirit, if you have repented of your sins, and he is Lord of your life. He wants you to rest in that. That's security. All of those, oh, I blew it last week or I blew it today coming to church. He, he should have never saved me, we might say, or he didn't know what he was getting when he saved me. All of that is from the pit of hell. Jesus knew who you were the sins you had committed before you gave your life to him, the sins that you commit today and the sins that you commit will commit in the future. How does he know that? Because he bored every one of them on the cross. It's not a surprise to Jesus. So just when 
it seems like we can take a breath and relax and say, hey, I'm in Christ. I don't have to strive. I don't have to work. Verse 11 tells us, the writer says, let us therefore labor. That's what the King James says. The new King James says, be diligent to enter that rest. And it sounds like a contradiction. I think supreme satisfaction, I would think, comes to a child of God when we are in the will of God, doing the work of God, trusting in the Lord, just resting in him. My brother Paul Allen, he gave a message not too long ago on a Wednesday. I hope you was looking. If you didn't, you'll get to catch it now. But Paul gave the analogy when he was riding an e-bike, and he said, the thing about an a e-bike, it won't move, it will not do anything unless you begin to pedal. And then when you begin to pedal, the electricity takes over, and it makes it so easy. And it touched me so much, that analogy. I said, I was getting my lesson together. I said, I need to find an e-bike. I need to go... I didn't know anybody had one, so I was going to rent one in Briarcliff, off Briarcliff Road, $85 worth of charger, and I, Lydia said, yeah, you can go get it. And uh, I called Paul and told him what I was about to do. He said, no, no, don't go, don't go. I've got one. And I said, Paul, I need to ride that thing. So he said, no, no, we don't have to do it tomorrow. I'm going to bring it up. You know how Paul Allen is. I'm going to bring it over to your house today. And so we went to the park, and I was nervous about riding it. And so I rode it around the park, learned uh, the eco switch, the, the boost switch, the trail switch. But you know Paul. If you know anything about it, he says, no, but you really need to ride it up a large hill, a trail. So I go over to his house Friday morning, and I rode it. So I want you to, I want you to see this video. First, I will ride my bike. Have you seen it? Okay. I will ride my bike. Very good bike. I ride it up this hill, and then I ride the e-bike. So have fun watching me struggle the first time. What is this tough? <laughs> That's pitiful. Man, this is tough trying to work-based righteousness here. <laughs> no help from the Lord. Steep hill too, Paul. Try harder, try harder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to do the right thing. I think I can. I think I can. I can. That's it, Paul. <laughs> this is what the Lord helped me. This is the e-bike. No problem, I can talk, I can have fun, because the Lord, the Spirit is doing all the work. The same here. That's good. That's how it is when we let go and allow God to work and maneuver in his life. He's He's came into our life to give us peace, to give us rest. He doesn't want us to be stressed out. The walk with Christ should be just like when I was riding that e-bike. 
I should be able to talk and fellowship stress-free. And that only comes from knowing what God has given us. We walk in those promises of God. How many of us get stressed out and bogged down, whether it's sin, whether it's just problems, and, and it's like we're pedaling up this mountain and full of stress? God didn't save us to live that way. There's a rest in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is talking about. If we're in Christ, that's how we should live. Whether there's problems in our lives and problems, we're going to have problems down here. But if we're in Christ and walking in his will, we can do it. And we know it's not us doing it. We know it's him doing it in us. We might be crying a, a loss of a loved one. I'm reminded of my mom says, I didn't think I was going to make it when your dad passed. But she said, something in me still put a smile on my face and I could still relate to this world down here and it was easier and all those things. That's the Holy Spirit. And that's who we need to lean on. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. There's going to be strenuous hills. There's going to be strenuous mountains in this world. And that's why we're yoked to Jesus Christ. His yoke is easy. He didn't say his yoke is easy and his burden is light for this situation or that situation. But if one comes up that's just really crazy, I, I'm, I'm sorry. No, that's me on my bike, my manual bike. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to understand there should be a rest in this Christian walk. But what's so amazing to me, as Paul said, I couldn't put one pedal in front of the other. It would not just automatically, like a motorcycle, take off unless I begin to pedal. That's faith. That's faith. He's just told us to put one foot in front of the other. And it doesn't have to be a heavy foot. It doesn't have to be a drudgery foot. He says, just push. And my power will prevail in your weakness. Are you living like that? Am I living like that? Some days I do. I'm being honest. Some days I don't. I'm just tired. And it's because, hey, I forgot to invite the Lord into my life. He wants to be in our life every single day, every second of every day. He doesn't want us to strive. He doesn't want this life to be drudgery. And it doesn't have to be. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. There's a rest for the believer. When times are, 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 seems like it's falling apart, there's a rest. Remember, Jesus was in the boat the storm comes, they find him out, master, we perish, and he's laying in the hall sleep. He knows there's a rest in him, and he wants his children to understand no matter what wave of life comes and tries to wreck the boat we're in, we can rest you guys. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That's what it's about. And then he says, let us, 
uh, verse 11, letter part, let us therefore labor, be diligent to enter that rest. And what he's saying, because it, it sounds almost contradictory, you're saying we don't have to do anything, but then you say let us labor. I use that word labor in the King James. The New King James says let us diligently I was trying to think, how can I do this? How can I do this? I'm going to tell my wife this morning. Uh, when we go shopping and I go to Kohl's, Lydia is notorious. She says, don't go check out. I've got a coupon here. I've got a coupon. And she'll stand at the counter. And if, I, if, we, stay there, if we stand there too long, I'll give her a minute and a half. After a minute and a half, I, let me go look at some clothes. Because my wife is not going to leave that counter until she gets her discount. I commend her that after we get to the car. I said, man, people are in, the, in line behind you. She said, I don't care. I got a discount. I'm going to use it. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Be diligent that you use that discount. You know you've got it. You know you've got that rest. Diligently look for it. Diligently strive for it because it's there. And like being on Paul's electric bike, at first, you know, good gracious, I got to hit this economy button, then I got to switch it down to trail or boost. But all of a sudden, I got used to it. At first, he was just uh, barely, like I didn't know how to ride a bike, walking with me. I hit this button, hit this button. But when I got used to it, I was saying, Paul, you can get away now. I got this thing. I can go up the hill with it. That's how the Holy Spirit works. But the work is allowing the Holy Spirit to fulfill his role, his role that he wants to fulfill in us. There's rest no matter what we're going. I'm telling you, no matter what situation comes in life, if we allow the Holy Spirit to do what he wants to do. You can pedal up that notorious big tall mountain with a smile on your face and talking to the Lord while you do it. That's the rest the writer is talking about. But you might have to labor to say, okay, I'm going to do it, Lord. I'm going to do it. I'm going to allow you to do it. I'm trying to do it on my own pace. I'm trying to do it on my, my own way. Let me stop. Let me push this trail button and the Lord is right there, and he will take over. That's amazing to me. So he says, let us therefore labor to enter that rest. Peter says this, grow in the grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in, in chapter 13, verse 9 says, it's good for the heart to be established. I've never caught this before. Established by what? Well, dummy, he tells you, Victor, by grace. We want it to be established by how much we know and this theological uh, uh, scripture to put there. The Holy Spirit says, no, this is what you need. Let your heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. The human heart is the kind of mechanism or dynamic that finds its rest in grace. God knows that. Don't you? Have you ever been around people that, especially if they're trying to teach you something, and they get flustered quickly, you're not catching on as soon, as quickly as they would think you should catch on? That's not grace. 
I like when I'm learning something, I've, I will seek, and you know this, I will search out somebody I know that's tender and kind and has patience with me. Then I can get in and say, oh, I, I, I messed up. And, and that person will say, that's all right. We'll do it again. That's how you learn, and that's grace, and that's what the Lord wants all of us to understand. It's not about knowing so much. It's about when you're teaching somebody to walk with God or teaching the scriptures, living your life, you live it in grace. None of us are perfect, and that's why the Holy Spirit says this. Let your heart be established by grace. There's a growth process to that. There's academic learning. You can learn what it says, but until you live it out, it's going to take grace to live it out. I study for Wednesday service. I study for Sunday service. But I get more when I'm sitting by myself and with the Lord, and he is just pouring into me. Lord, I don't understand this. I don't understand that. And he tells me again and again. Then finally I says, oh, I know what you're talking about. I'm learning more. Pray that I can live this out. I've said it several times going through Hebrews. It's not how much you know. It's all about how much we show the Bible in our lives. We're long-suffering. We're patient. We're kind. And that's what he's saying right here. He's my vacation, and he's also my location. He says, lest anyone fall short according to the same example, and he boils it back to unbelief or of disobedience. The reason I know you don't believe is because you're not obeying me, plain and simple. The children of Israel, they didn't rest because of unbelief. The work was finished. He says in verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful. The Bible is not like any other book. God's word diagnoses our hearts with a certain precision. That's how it works. It lays open the heart and accurately discerns spiritual health. That's why he says it's powerful. The Greek word is energes. Of course, we get the word energy from The word of God is living, and it energizes the believer. He says, and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is two-edged. It will cut toward me, and it will cut towards you at the same time. The word of God, Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The Thessalonians received the word of God, not just, they didn't think it was just an ordinary book. They received it as the very words of God. You know, it's been said, the word of God will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the word of God. He goes on to say it's piercing. It's ability to go deep within, even to the division of soul. I capsulize the soul as the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's a little more than that, but that's how I capsulate it. When man's soulish 
or unregenerate man thinks about God, he thinks wrong. When the natural man thinks of God, he thinks about him wrong. His vision is skewed. They don't understand his grace and his mercy and all of that. He says, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, that part of us that relates to God rightly. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They could still relate to God, but their relationship, when they sinned, it got skewed. It, it got blindsided. They, they, it was distorted. Their spiritual antenna They didn't have that anymore. I'll prove it. Remember when they had sinned, and I believe it was Jesus Christ that would walk through through the garden with them in the cool of the day. And they did something they had never did before because they had never sinned. Adam, where are you? All of a sudden, they want to hide because their vision was skewed. They couldn't trust him like they trusted him anymore. It was more than skewed. The light had went out. They could still communicate with him, with with the soulish man, but they couldn't understand him clearly. They, they, They couldn't trust him fully anymore because the spiritual antenna had died. That's why when we're born again, that spiritual antenna awakens us. That's why it's still a battle when you're walking with the Lord and you're walking with him fleshly or the soulish man, you're bound to mess up. That's why we have to walk by the spirit of God. Jesus said, you must worship me how in spirit and in truth. That's how we identify with the Lord. They couldn't worship anymore. They couldn't fellowship with him. There are times in scripture when the soul and spirit is synonymously, it's the same. Only the word of God can divide soul and spirit. We can't do that. He goes on to say, and joints and marrow, the word can get right down even in the flesh of ours and make a distinction. It says in Psalms 32, 3, David says, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. He goes on to say in Hebrews, and is a discerner. The Greek word discerner actually means critic. Hmm. We have today many critics of the word of God. However, the word of God criticizes us. It criticizes you and it criticizes me. No man is in a position to sit in judgment on the word of God. There are many reasons for that. And one reason is that there is no other book like the Bible. The word of God was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 45 different authors, some of whom had never heard of the other. Yet they are all in agreement. They all represent a glorious salvation. No man is in a position to sit in judgment on such a remarkable book. He goes on to say in the latter part of verse 12, he says, the word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
that's scary there. You cannot hide from God. The hypocrite, I say this all the time, the hypocrite is the most pitiful person on the face of the earth. You might be hypocritical. You might be a hypocrite and skate all your life in hypocrisy, in a life of hypocrisy, and die. And the one who knows you says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Playing the hypocrite is a failed role. And that's why I feel sorry for the hypocrite. But even the word of God can snatch him out of hypocrisy if he wants to repent of that sin. The Lord Jesus said, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. That's a filthy list. But that is what is in the heart and mind of mankind. Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? No man but God knows the heart. The word of God gets down right and probes the man, and he sees everything. Verse 13 says, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him. I've told you guys about my two shih tzus, Max and Leo. Max is the smallest one, and he just loves affection, and he'll pierce Fiercely look into your eyes, and you'll get lost in Max's eyes. Leo is the teenager. He doesn't want to be around you. He does not come around you unless he's hurting. Then he comes around you. And sometimes I look at Max, and I say, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? I mean, he looks at you with those sad eyes and says, I love you so much, Daddy. That's what he's saying. I love you so much, Daddy. The word is saying God knows even about him. There's no creature that is not open to God. You cannot conceal anything from God. God even knows our motives before we do them. You know, we say a lot of things sometimes because we're around people and we say the right things because we don't want people to really know us or really judge us. And I always tell uh, the staff, if you're going to ask somebody to do something, the best day to ask them to serve a minister is on Sunday. You got them here. They've just heard the word. They're talking to their friends, and, and the Holy Spirit is working, and they say yes. But when Tuesday or Wednesday comes, <laughs> oh, I shouldn't have did it. Or, hey, they're so bold, hey, I can't do it. I, 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 something happened, I can't do it. <laughs> That's just the way it is. That's the Spirit working. That's how we should allow the Spirit to be a part of our lives anyway. Our motives, God even knows those. And if we do things for the wrong reason or the wrong motives, to God, that's nothing but dung anyway. It's not going to benefit us anyway. I don't know about you, but I want to know God better. I would recommend first that we are in the word. Spend time with him in the word. The better you know him, the more you can trust him. 
When I first got on that e-bike, I was very nervous and had ridden bikes all my life. But I was still nervous because you had to hit this button, you had to continue to pedal, you had to do this, you had to do that. But after a minute or two, like I said, hey, man, I can handle this. So I want to invite you guys, stop working. God is a gentleman. He tells you what he wants you to do in the scripture, but he would never, God would never tell us to do anything and not provide what we need to do them. That's what the Holy Spirit is for. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and make our lives so much easier. That's that's what the writer is saying. He tells us, because he's telling the Hebrews, don't go back to these ceremonies. They are worshiping Christ Messiah now. At the same time, they've turned away from all the sacrificial offerings, the ordinances, all of those things. Some of these families, they have lost their families. They've actually, it's called Shiva. They actually went out and put up a gravestone of a living person. And they're saying, you're dead to me. We know what that means. We've said that. You're dead to me. All because of a relationship with Jesus Christ. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So this is probably around 64, 62 AD. These things are happening. And now he's telling the believers here, hey, you have to understand, Jesus is greater than the angels. That's where we started off at. And he's also greater than Moses. And he's greater than Joshua. I know Joshua brought them into the promised land, but yet and still he's greater than Joshua. He's greater than any high priest because you know they looked up to the high priest. He's greater than Aaron. And then they're going to say, well, how can he be greater than Aaron when he comes from the tribe of Judah? And then we're going to get in. We won't get into this morning. He begins to talk about Melchizedek. He's a high priest from a different order. Verse 14 tells us, he exhorts them here, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, that clears up who the high priest is. Let us hold fast our confession. So that pass through the heavens is very important. That's an interesting statement. Jesus, the Son of God, it clears up who the high priest is. He's laying out here these reasons why the priesthood of Jesus is all we need, and no doubt about it, Jesus Christ is all we need. And he begins by giving the importance of the sufficiency of the priesthood, Jesus by saying he has passed through the heavens. The reason he says he's passed through the heavens, we know that the temple on earth reflects the temple that is in heaven. And on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in two times. He would go in first and take care of his sins. And then the second time, he would go in and have the blood from the ram, the lamb, and then sprinkle it on the mercy seat to take care of the sins of the people. And every time the high priest would come, 
the community would almost be in awe of him. They knew what his role was. They knew what his job was. And he got all the respect because they knew what he had to do. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, he's not on earth. He's passed through the heavens. He died for your sins. He stayed in the grave for three days. He ascended on high, and he passed through the heavens. And, I, and this is my opinion, because I've heard the apostle Paul says, when he died, what did Paul say? He went to the third heaven. So it has to be past the first and the second heaven. It has to be the third heaven Jesus goes to where the tabernacle, the true tabernacle is, and he takes his own blood and puts it there. That's what he's saying here. Jesus passed through the heavens on the day of atonement. And then he says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The, the Aaronic priesthood is going to become obsolete. All of these priesthood is going to become obsolete because Jesus Christ, the old covenant, he's going to come with another covenant, which is the new covenant, and he's the high priest of that covenant. It's done. It's over because we have a new high priest, and our high priest has gone through the heavens. He doesn't go into a room. He goes to heaven. He went into the heavens. The holiness of God, he goes there, and he goes there on our behalf. Imagine that. Remember in the Old Testament, I wish I could have seen it the first time when Moses put on Aaron, his brother, all of that high priest garments and those 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, those emeralds and, and those rubies and those sapphires, all of those 12 stones. So when Aaron would go to officiate, he would remember he's going in there for these 12 tribes. That was intimate. I'm going to show you something that's not. I'm going to tell you something that's not intimate. It's like our two senators. I, 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 can, I don't remember their names right now. But they are supposed to represent us, right? Isn't that the way it goes? Do you think they have your picture on their chest, your picture on their chest when they go to Washington to remember, oh, I'm not here for my own glory and to do things my own way. I've got a little knuckleheaded in Lawrenceville named Victor, I've got to officiate. I've got to make sure he's okay. No, because they don't know us and they don't care. Jesus, at the beginning of the, the, the temple, said, when you go in there, I want you to remember 12 beautiful tribes that you're officiating over. And when Jesus, now that he's in heaven, every believer... He knows intimately. He knows int more intimately more than Aaron and the priesthood knew because they didn't shed their blood for any of us. Jesus has shedded his blood for those that has given their lives to him, and you don't think he knows us intimately. He knows when you're shedding tears, you're hurting. 
He knows when you're happy. He knows when you're shedding tears for your loved ones. And it, it bothers him. It bothers him because this world is so messed up. I tell you, he wants to hear from us. And he's here to enable us by the Holy Spirit to help us along until he calls us home. Once again, he doesn't want us in drudgery down here. I believe that with all my heart. That's why the Holy Spirit is there. First Timothy says this, 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this is where Catholicism has it wrong. God says there's only one. I don't have to go to a priest down here, talk to a priest down here about my sins. We have the great high priest, Jesus Christ, we can talk to one-on-one, and he knows us, and he loves us, and he will do for us. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. Jesus is human, and he's God. That's the crazy part. I can now go before God in the person of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. And, of course, that takes the saints from the Catholic Church out of it. Verse 14 tells us, he says, knowing all these things, let us hold fast to our confession. I like the way the NIV says it. It says, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. I like that. You say you have faith. When the bottom falls out of your life, like it will do sometimes, you say you have faith. Keep walking with the Lord. There might be tears, there might be sadness, but don't turn back. Keep walking with the Lord. He gives us everything we need to walk with him. That's the kind of God we serve. And that's what the writer is saying. It should be the confession of our heart. It's the faith that we have in Jesus and the finished work of Jesus on the cross that keeps us walking He says, let us hold fast to our faith that we have confessed in the person of Jesus Christ. Hold on tight to that faith. One of my pet peeves, not that you care, but I'm going to tell you anyway, a great pet peeve of mine is, and I should know better because when I'm watching news or when I'm watching uh, talk shows and people say, "Uh, yeah, I have faith. Or my faith is this and my faith is that. And my question is, you have faith in who? It's almost they don't want to say, I have faith in Jesus Christ. I have faith. I have faith. But who do you have faith in? Because that's what the writer is saying here. You best put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. He can do something with your faith. Jesus says a sobering He asked a sobering question in Luke 18. He says this, when the son of man comes, will he find faith here on the earth? He doesn't say, when I come, will I find you busy doing ministry? He says, will I find faith here on earth? That's what we need. 
and we need it in the person of Jesus Christ. And once again, if that faith is genuine, it's an action word. You can't say you have faith and then sit down. We should be about his business, loving one another, saying, okay, forgiving one another, praying for one another, doing for one another. That's faith. And we do it all because of who has did those things for us, Jesus Christ. Are you busy about his business this morning? And then he says in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. And this is such an important verse to ponder and to think about because Jesus was and is, in fact, human in every aspect. And so he is able to sympathize. I'm amazed with that, with everything that we go through. I hope you don't get tired of hearing what I'm about to say. But I'm amazed. I'm amazed at fat girl, my daughter. To see her, I'd like to bring you a picture. To see her look like all her life, just about, looked like a model. Weight, shape, beauty, everything. I guess she gets some from her mom, maybe a little from her dad. And rebelling, running away, running away from the Lord. Couldn't tell her anything, running away from the Lord. And we would pray, and we would pray, Lord, save her. I don't care, save her. And then when she gets this transplant, she has to get this transplant. She gives her life to the Lord. I've told you before, she was like a cat. Drop her, lands on her feet. No matter what would happen to Erica, lands on her feet. But my God is so good. He says, I got something for her. And I've got something for her because I love her. And I love you too, Lydia, and I love you too, Victor. There might be more tears now, but there's going to be more glory one day when you see her face to face where you always wanted her. And she struggles. People with transplants, a lot of them do very well. But Erica doesn't do very well. And it hasn't been since she got that transplant. And I'm not lying. There hasn't been one time that she said a grumbling word, a, a discouraging word that comes out of her mouth. She says, Daddy, but, you know, God is good. I was talking to Lydia Powell. We were eating lunch, and Erica called me, and, I picked, and she said, Daddy, I got bad news. She starts telling me things. And she said, but God is good. And she doesn't say it. You know, some people say, God's good. Man, she means it. She has to 
put her arm around her mom and calm her down. Mom, it's going to be all right. And I'm not saying she doesn't have bad days because she does. She aches, she hurts, she does all those things. But for it to be almost seven years and not to hear one word come over her mouth that she's disappointed and disgruntled, she says, God is good because he is. Because she knows, and I want you to understand, this is not our home. We're passing through here. We need to hold on to the faith of Jesus Christ. And we need to use everything the Holy Spirit has provided for us to live godly lives and to live lives that, uh, that's fulfilling down here. He just didn't save us to live drudgery down here. We can have fulfilling lives down here. That's why I tell you this. He loves us. He has every believer's name on his heart when he prays for him. And when he says, I haven't heard from Victor in a while. I want to hear from you. We need to live the way he wants us to. We need to live the abundant Christian life that he has provided for us. We need to get on that e-bike and talk going up that steep incline because you can never talk on my bike, <laughs> on a manual bike. That's what the Lord has in for- store for us. That's how we should be living. Let's not miss this hope that we have, okay? Worship team can come up. I'm going to pray. Father, you are good. Not only have you saved us, you provided the abundant life down here right now if we would only plug in to the Holy Spirit and stop trying to do things on our own. That we would say, Lord, this is too much for me. I can't handle it. But I know you can. I believe your word. I believe there's supernatural ability not coming from me, but inside me that can take me through any mountain I might have to go through, Lord. That's not what I'm, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. That's what your word says. So let us just trust in you. Catch hold to your garment and not let you go. Lord, I pray for anyone here that's once again hurting physically, mentally, spiritually, Lord. Would you do a work? You're wanting to help them more than they could understand because that's the kind of God you are. Lord, I pray for those in our family that's not saved, that you would move miraculously, that you would draw them to your kindness and to your goodness and to your holiness. And we'll be sure to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. May our thoughts be of you even more in this Advent season, Father. And may we lean on you and not our own strength. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.